You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and Merry Christmas from Monocle. You are listening to a special edition of Midori House. I'm Daniel Bage. Coming up. I would be reading the book and over and over uh, again, Atticus is telling us in different ways that there is goodness in everybody. And in the midst of all this, uh, Donald Trump said there are good people on both sides. From Aaron Sorkin's update to To Kill a Mockingbird to the controversies surrounding Baby It's Cold Outside, 2018 has brought us new questions over whether we ought to remember or revise the past. Also ahead, we'll find out how a new comic book publisher is aiming to do things a little differently. And... Hark now, hear the angels sing A new king born today what do Harry Belafonte, Boney M, and Whitney Houston have in common? They all scored a December number one. But has the festive chart topper become a mere Christmas memory? Plus... Oh, George, that's you. I've got a brain. How can I ever thank you enough? Uh, well, you can't. As for you, my... We'll consider the delicate art of saying thank you. I'll be joined by a panel of Monocle's finest, Paige Reynolds, Ben Ryland, and Georgina Godwin on this special Christmas edition of Midori House, starting now. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, as mentioned, Paige Reynolds, Ben Ryland, and Georgina Godwin. Welcome all to the program. To Kill a Mockingbird is quite rightly one of the greatest American novels. It's read by schoolchildren around the world, and for many, it, ser- it serves rather as an introduction to conversations about race, injustice, and tolerance. So when writer Aaron Sorkin was asked to adapt the novel for the stage, he knew he was staring down an enormous challenge. More of a surprise, perhaps, was the reaction to his script, which took some key deviations from the book. The play's producers were sued by the estate of Harper Lee, the book's author. However, many of Sorkin's changes remain. Ben, let's start with you. How different was Sorkin's version from the original? Well, initially, Sorkin has said that he had penned a version that was actually very, very loyal to the text. And he he sent it off to the producer of the play. And the response was that uh, some things had to change. It needed to have some injection of something else in it. And uh, one of those specific suggestions was that uh, the the lead character, Atticus Finch, uh, needs to go on some sort of journey. He needs to be like a protagonist is in most stories where they start out in one place and their character arc takes you to another place. Now that's something that is in itself quite different to the book. Harper Lee didn't pen her, her book to um, to show Atticus as going on any kind of journey and he's not really the protagonist of the book anyway, Scout. Uh, is is the lead uh, the lead character in the book. Uh, so in this version that Aaron Sorkin has penned, Atticus Finch does have flaws, which brought some trouble with the estate of of Harper Lee. Uh, he does go on a journey to become who he eventually becomes, uh, but it also gives more of a voice to the black characters as well, which is something that hadn't been there before, and that was something that oddly did. Uh, aroused some criticism from the lawyer who had worked for Harper Lee. Uh, That lawyer had said that uh, some of the aspects of the black characters uh, weren't quite right. She said that um, a typical black maid back then would not speak the way that Sorkin had written some of the dialogue for that character.
character. And Sorkin, uh, I think quite rightly, responded that there is really no such thing as a, a typical maid and that plays aren't written about typical people doing typical things. Well, that's interesting. Sorkin did write that he felt Lee's novel had not shown the black characters, Calpurnia or Robinson's reactions to the racial, racial injustice around them at the time and so updated accordingly uh, to give them a greater voice. Page, we're talking about art and uh, with this message, message, isn't that okay in this day and age to, to try to sort of hammer home what the, what the themes are? Yeah, I, I, think, I think particularly when um, Sorkin has this kind of platform and the ability to tell a story that's uh, incredibly important in, in the climate that's happening in the United States at the moment. And I think, uh, you know, I think we can all talk about how it's quite frustrating when uh, one of our sort of favourite books gets adapted and they change the characters or they change the plot. And, but changing the message, I think that's um, something that, that Sorkin had done uh, at a very important time um, for the United States. And I think in the 60s, when Harper Lee wrote this novel, um, in order for the novel to sort of gain uh, the audience that, that, that it should have, she she almost had to write it in this way. There wasn't an, there wasn't really, um, you know, much acceptance for writing perhaps um, uh, characters of ethnic minorities um, with sort of such voice. But we're in 2018 now, and I think to uh, to keep those characters that way would be very kind of outdated. And you know, uh, Sorkin did. Uh, reply to a lot of the other um, requests from Harper Lee's estate. I mean, the estate objected to 80 elements and 40% of these are now gone. So, you know, he wasn't sort of just standing and saying, no, this is my play. I'm going to do what I want with it. He, he did listen, but I think uh, the message is something that, that really couldn't be changed. Uh, it's it's interesting. There's another example of, of this that happened on Broadway recently with uh, the revival of, of Showboat. And uh, that famously was a book that uh, covered a lot of racial tensions happening on the Mississippi River. It is considered to be the first modern Broadway musical. Um, but it, in order to be so successful back in the 1930s, it had to show a story that concerned white people while also somehow maintaining its message of racial tolerance as well. And it, it did that quite cleverly in its time. But now, if you go back and watch the Schobert musical, the MGM musical from the 1950s, or if you can find it, the original from the 1930s, uh, it, it's quite difficult to, to take it at face value because you are quite clearly seeing a story that is about black people, except that it's led by white people. And really the only time that you get to see a message of race uh, told from the perspective of someone who is actually black is with the big musical number Old Man River. Mm. So if you if you were to put that on Broadway today, you probably would update it in, in in some slight ways just to give the racial message a little bit more of a punch. Don't you think? Don't you think that one of the wonders of literature is that you are being spoken to heart to heart by somebody who wrote these words maybe hundreds of years before. You're actually sharing something with an author who's written what it is that they want to say at that time and therefore I think that changing the meaning of things even though we now need to take it in a different context is probably wrong but what you can do is change cosmetic things so for instance Agatha Christie writing uh, Ten Little Nigger Boys Mm. obviously that's been changed to Then There Were None and 
things like that which you can change so that you're not giving offence. But I think if a writer is writing something, I, I mean, there was nothing to say Harper Lee would not have been published. I mean, she wrote uh, uh, Ghost at a Watchman, of course, which was only just published recently, very much against the, the will of very many people, mm. which was much more racist uh, than, in fact, uh, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. So I, I think To Kill a Mockingbird actually was as, as liberal as she felt, perhaps more liberal than she felt, it seems, that uh, perhaps there may have been some changes later. I think that we run a, a, a risk of, of, um, of really changing writers' intention. And, and, you know, you wouldn't, uh, you know, a lot of perhaps what, um, I don't know, uh, Charlotte Bronte thought isn't relevant to today, but you wouldn't change that. That's Charlotte having a private conversation with me or you or whoever her readers are. And I think that it's wrong to jump in and say, no, she didn't mean that, she meant this. Well, if she meant something else, she would have written it. If you mean her, if you need her to mean something else, you write it. That's your book. That's something different. I think that when you when you start tampering with things that we really love, it's it's dangerous. And and um, I mean, how far do you take it? Music, all the rest of it. But and I know we'll talk about that in in a moment. But for instance, nursery rhymes. Mm. If you take something much loved, like say three blind mice, here's how it could sound three visually impaired rodents three visually impaired rodents see how they run see how they run they all ran after the agriculturalist life partner who in a non-aggressive way advised them that they were invading her personal space it's got a nice uh, cadence to it doesn't it you'll have to forgive me if i can't memorize that straight away georgina um no i think i think georgina does raise a, a good point however i would argue that uh, it, aaron sorkin's intent here i don't think has been to rewrite to kill a mockingbird. And I think that's where we run into a little bit of trouble. Uh, So if you look at the ads for To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, this play, it is a new play by Aaron Sorkin. That's how it is being pitched. And and Harper Lee did not write a play. She wrote a book. Mm. So there is going to be an adaptation taking place here because that's the only way to put it on the stage. So if you are to get someone of the calibre of Aaron Sorkin writing a play, he's not that kind of writer who's going to be sitting there just, just transferring a novel into the format of a play and then up it goes on stage. There have already been versions that have done that quite faithfully. This is a reimagining and it's what we get from uh, from, from productions that make their way to Broadway all of the time. And I do think it is quite beneficial and at the same time, this the, the original novel is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. It will still be the original novel that is read by school children all across the United States and, of course, across the world as well. That's still going to be there for all of us to enjoy. This is a new version that is going to be playing on Broadway. People can go along and see it. Most people will have already known the story back to front by now anyway. But it might just open your mind and, and make you think about it in a brand new way. And I think that is the, that's the great gift that Aaron Sorkin may have given us all. Mm. Well put, Ben. And I think if we, if if we see uh, this being continued to be taught in schools, maybe it opens up the conversation about the context in which those characters are set, and that is the important part, perhaps. Let's just change change our tune quickly. I, I want to look at the controversy that perhaps should never have been this holiday season. Uh, agree or disagree, baby? It's cold outside. Originally a flirtatious duet between husband and wife, sung at parties to indicate the night was over, was. 
pulled from many, many playlists and in some cases then put back. Uh, Paige, uh, do you understand what happened here? Do you know this controversy? Yeah, I do. I think actually this isn't the first year that people have had issues with Baby It's Cold Mm. Outside. This has sort of been a conversation that has sort of been creeping up, but I think we are um, we're definitely in in a climate where um, there's quite a lot of moral black and whiteism about a lot of culture sort of now and and of past Mm. that's resurfacing. Um, And, you know, it has been called a sort of a, a, a song that promotes rape culture. But I think whatever your position is on it, I think ultimately um, it's it's a song that you know hasn't been updated for the for the modern times because it is a song which which mm. is very much in in and of its period. Obviously, if we rewrote that song today, we might change it to make it more current. But we're not. It, it is what it is, and it's quite self contained. Um, and you know, if the song is triggering or traumatizing, then by all means, let's not play it. But but I think there's um, people are really thirsty to just really jump on the bandwagon with this mm. kind of thing and say that it, you know, something is wholly bad and therefore we mustn't play it and therefore we must ban it. And I think there's a lot of nuance which seems to just get lost in, in, in the conversation and which has got lost in this in this debate. Georgina, what do you make of the, the sort of reaction? And, and a lot of broadcasters around the world just said they're going to pull it because we have these kind of Twitter mobs that are that are shaming them, saying, well, you should pull this classic song because it doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's clearly ridiculous, but um, I appreciate that some people may be offended by it. Uh, don't listen, switch off. I, I mean, this is a, a song that's been around for a long time. And I think that, uh, as I was saying earlier, that was the intention of the songwriters. It was written in in a different era. But I can quite see, I mean, some of the the, the, the um, lyrics say, what's in this drink, she says, you know, I mean, that whole kind of spike drink thing. But I think that if you listen to the lyrics more carefully, it seems to me like she, the woman, is actually really reluctant to go. Uh, and she's kind of trying to blame the fact that maybe she's had a little bit too much to drink. It's a bit cold. She doesn't really want to go. He doesn't seem to be that bothered either way. I would say to both <laughs> of them, just call the Uber already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. You can kind of hear the smile in her voice a yeah. little bit when she's saying right. it. And you could almost argue that, you know, she actually wants to say, but at, at that point in society, it would sort of look kind of bad if she were to sort of stay out. So there's there's different I think interpretations. That's, that's the great point that I think has been missed in a lot of the commentary surrounding this is that that was the the, the way that uh, the the female vocal in that song is is being written. That was the acceptable, acceptable way for a woman to actually say, mm-hmm. I would like to sleep with you tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the 1950s version of, of what that would sound like. And if we if we were to go back and and reassess a whole bunch of songs uh, from that sort of era, you'd be in in a lot of trouble. Consider um, "Luck Be a, a Lady," which is a famous song from originally performed in the Guys and Dolls musical, but it became a very big song for Frank Sinatra. And there's a, a lyric. If you listen to the lyrics of that, it sounds like a man is claiming ownership, forced mm-hmm. ownership of his date. Uh, a, a lady doesn't leave her escort. It isn't fair. It isn't nice. A lady doesn't wander all over the room and blow on some other guy's dice. Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> exactly. But of course, in the context of what the song is talking about, he's actually not talking about a lady at all. He's talking about luck and how badly he wants to win this this game while he's gambling. So I think context is key no matter what you're talking about. And unfortunately, in this baby, it's cold outside debate, the context has been utterly removed and, mm. and everyone's 
everyone's gone a little bit mad. And I think a, a pop song today may uh, put things more explicitly as well, and people aren't up in arms about oh, that as much. I mean, so. anyone, anyone who'd like to read the, uh, the piece about this by Mr. Robert Bound can have a few other examples mm. of just how uh, outlandish some other pop songs have got in recent years. Exactly. In our winter uh, Monocle newspaper, I want to uh, just turn the page now and look at comic books. A lot of people uh, will be going to the movies uh, this Christmas or perhaps getting uh, some comic books under the tree. Uh, not long ago, seen by many as the domain of nerds and children. Now the Marvel and DC uh, are, well, they're both ruling the box office uh, and it's serious business. Breaking into the industry as a new publisher, we can say, can be like trying to leap a tall building in a single bound. TKO, however, hopes to change that. The ambitious upstart says it'll be doing things differently. It won't operate via the usual distribution channels. They'll release all of the volumes in a series at once, allowing for binge reading. And even the sizes of, the, of their books will just be a little bit bigger. Despite the dominance of comic book uh, movies, the books aren't always taken uh, so seriously, are they, Ben? Uh, no, and they never really have been. Even when comic books first arrived uh in their modern form, which really happened with the emergence of Superman in, in 1938, uh, they, they were still, all the way back then, only considered for, for children. And, and even if you take them up to the 1950s, there was a, a very big movement by uh, a, a psychiatrist, I believe he was, uh, Frederick Wortham, to uh, ban a lot of comic books because they were teaching young people some very troubling morals, uh, such as the bondage seen in Wonder Woman comics and mm. the homosexual relationship between Batman and Robin. Uh, I think that was the only time they were taken seriously, but not not for a very good reason. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's always surprised me that the world of comic books has so, sort of been siloed off from every other uh, popular form of, of entertainment. Even now, we often consider them just to be the, the domain of, of nerds and, uh, and, and children. And that's, that's simply not the case. The whole industry has evolved uh, so much over, over recent years, and you've got so much originality. And you know, the, the growth of graphic novels has really become an extraordinary beast all its own. And yet still... It doesn't feel like they're given the the same degree of seriousness that maybe a great mm. novel or or even a great uh, a great movie is given. Georgina, are you at all surprised that it's it's taken a publisher uh, until now to try this to try this model to put everything out at once? It, it seems to make sense in the Netflix era, does it not? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think if you go back to Dickens, who serialized his work, and we yeah. all sort of loved. I say we all. I'm not quite that old. Um, <laughs> getting, getting them um, sort of week by week, um, but. But obviously, and then and then we saw that the growth of the of the novel from mm. that. It's only it's only really um, understandable that 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 uh, that comic books should be now following in, in the steps of that. I think that I mean you're seeing it really grow. You see, I mean there are huge conventions like Comic Con and things like that where you have all of these people that really love comics coming together. But as Ben says, it's more than more than comics. And actually, what is the line between a comic and a, and a graphic novel? Mm. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm not a fan at all. Never ever have been. I just can't I, I would much prefer just to, to read the written word but I think there have been a couple of really amazing ones um, out uh, recently I think uh, Eddie Campbell is a fantastic uh, comic writer uh, 
uh, he, um, he he's one of his most famous books is called From Hell, which he did with Neil Gaiman. Mm. Uh, and, and he's absolutely brilliant. What's really interesting about him is that he's married to Audrey Niffenegger, who wrote The Time Traveller's Wife. And so together, Audrey and Eddie, who are really a couple that you wouldn't automatically put together in your head, but who work fantastically well, um, have written a, a, a graphic novel called Bizarre Romance. And it's all about their love affair and the fact that she's this, you know, million, million selling novelist and he's this graphic uh, designer and artist and illustrator. And, and they've done this beautiful book together. So that's one that I do mm. like. But but uh, And then there's another one that came out recently. Jim Broadbent, who, of course, is the very well-known actor, teamed up with Dix, who's the Guardian uh, columnist. And they wrote a thing called um, uh, Dull Margaret, which is uh, based on uh, Bruegel and, and Mad Meg or Dull Greet. Uh, again, a book I absolutely couldn't stand, but I think a lot of people really, really liked it. It was just very, very dark. Paige, perhaps uh, part of the reason we're having this conversation is we forget that beyond the you know the big Hollywood blockbusters we've mentioned, there is a massive industry on the other side. So it's it's perhaps then not surprising that there's still a lot of uh, a lot of avenues for publishers to take. Definitely, I think what's interesting actually, I, the most interesting thing I thought about this publisher is um, the fact that they are directly distributing to customers as opposed yeah. to um, going through a retailer. And my initial thought would be that the retailers would be um, kind of annoyed at this because not being able to sort of take a cut. But actually, the the retailers uh, in this um, uh, in the New York Times piece about this company ha- have actually said that this is a good thing because comic books are quite difficult to distribute because of the serialized nature of mm. them. So I think that's really interesting. And this specific publisher also um, they are kind of issuing superheroes, yeah, which is sort of the, the the natural thing, I suppose, for mm. for comics to focus on for so long. I mean, they're going to talk about things such as Russian snipers battling the Nazis. Um, they're going to uh, they've got a, a great one by Roxane Gay and Ming Doyle, um, which is going to be three generations of black women pulling off a revenge heist. They've got some really, I think, uh, interesting and, and perhaps this is a bit basic, but I guess more more adult themes, I suppose, or things that I personally would, would like to engage with more. Yeah. But on, on Georgina's point, it has been... Uh, quite a, a pretty good year for the, the graphic novel um, and we actually we saw a graphic novel on the um, on the long list of the Man Booker for mm. the first time um, Nick Dronasso's Sabrina which I've just ordered for Christmas <laughs> oh, um, so I'm excited about that uh, Another good thing about this uh, TKO is that they'll actually be focusing on print and I think that's a very important factor here because um, the the major difference obviously with graphic novels and comic books to uh, the, the regular kind of a book is that you are focusing on the pictures and the words at the same time and it's all coming together to tell a very original style of story and a lot of the bigger comic book companies particularly DC they're going through this process now where they too are delivering directly to the consumer in a a digital way so you can read your comic books the minute they are released via the app on your iPad or whatever else which is fine for for I'm sure many people who who consume a lot of these things and read them absolutely religiously and uh, quite often to get the full story you need to be reading Mm. five or six different titles it can become very expensive and, and quite quite a difficult to get your hands on all of those titles at the at the one time. So that makes sense for them, but you do lose something I think when you're talking about uh, an artwork. You know, comic books are drawn with pens and paper. You know, they they are, it is it is a physical hand-drawn uh, form of art. So I do think you lose something quite crucial if you're looking at this on a screen only. So for them for TKO to be taking that back to its roots and 
be relying on, on paper again, I think is quite refreshing. Well, very interesting. Uh, this is Midori House, a special festive edition here with me, Daniel Bache. Uh, we have Paige Reynolds, Georgina Godwin, and Ben Ryland. You just heard there uh, from comic books to chart toppers, uh, the top single Christmas Club was once upon a time a coveted little clique featuring the talents of Elvis Presley, the Beatles, Tom Jones, Queen, Pet Shop Boys, and even my favorite, the Spice Girls. But in the age of streaming, has the Christmas crown lost its shine? Band-Aid, Band-Aid 20s revival of Do They Know It's Christmas in 2004 was the last physical single to shift one million copies in a week. That is astounding, but uh, when we uh, can all stream and listen for free to what we want, uh, Georgina, does it really matter? Uh, who has the number one single at this time of year? I mean, I suppose it do- doesn't particularly, but it's a lovely thing to kind of get hyped up about and, and kind of join in with. On on the Band-Aid thing, of course, uh, that was the third time that it had chopped the, topped the charts. Mm. It, uh, it was first in 1984, then Band-Aid 2 in 1989, and then again in 2004. Although how on earth they got away with lyrics like, uh, it won't be snowing, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas. Frankly, there never is. Um, and... <laughs> Um, and and just you know just the lines the, the lines about you know no rain or river flows plenty of rain and rivers it's just a really really annoys me that single but apart from that um, you're absolutely right I mean it doesn't really matter we 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 listen to what we look what we want to listen mm. to but I think it's this this lovely thing of of everybody kind of getting behind it and what you're seeing more and more is celebrity endorsement so I know that um, that that last year Ed Sheeran one of the reasons he went to number one was that Beyonce got behind it and was telling everybody buy Ed Sheeran's single for, for for Christmas and and so you know that that he, he got massive sales because of that and then again this year we've seen massive celebrity endorsement uh, James Corden mm. I think was going for the for the for the novelty song and I think that's a, a whole other subject isn't it I mean, how much do we really want a novelty song at Christmas right. when you think of those terrible things like the St Winifred's Girls Choir do you remember mm, that oh. Grandma we love you Grandma we do <laughs> although you may be far away we mm. still love you I mean those lyrics are just things that you want to slit your wrists with wet spaghetti. <laughs> so, so viral viral campaign or charity single, I think that those are two ways to get to the top of the charts. But uh, Ben, with the metrics all off now with streaming and everything, does it does it matter to you what's number one this Christmas? I've got to be honest, no, I don't. It doesn't matter to me at all. And I had to go and look up the list, the historical list here mm. to, uh, to just see some of the songs that were number one because it hasn't really occurred to me an awful lot over the years. But one thing it did bring to mind was that part of the reason perhaps we coveted the number one spot so collectively uh, in days gone by was that uh, music used to be a physical thing, right? So you could give it as a gift to people. Mm. That wouldn't be unusual. I I can remember uh, my mother getting uh, Christmas albums for Christmas, the Ally McBeal Christmas album. I can remember that from back, well, some time ago now. Um, So that was was quite... quite a joy in itself but you can't you can't gift someone a download can you music has become such an impersonal thing yeah. it's, it's not it's not a tangible thing you can't wrap it up in wrapping paper anymore so that i feel like has been quite a, a loss certainly something you won't find under the christmas tree yeah. anymore yeah, I mean, I have to agree. I think it's, it is it is sad that we don't have music in, it, in its physical form. But in terms of the way that charts and how we engage with music anymore, I, d- I don't feel too sad about um, the chart becoming less and less mm. important because ultimately the charts were sort of uh, major labels, the Warner, the Universal, Sony, sort of having massive radio campaigns and it being sort of played on the radio so many times that you're like, oh, I love this song because it's almost this weird sense of um, uh, familiarity with it. And now I think instead of charts, I don't 
know if we all use Spotify here, but mm. um, Spotify very cleverly kind of gives you your own chart at the end of the year. It gives you your Spotify wrapped for 2018. So those are the songs that you've streamed the most in, in, in their order. So it's kind of quite nice to have like a personalised mm. number one as opposed to just, um, you know, kind of what, what, what everyone else is doing. And unfortunately, I think the thing that really started to ruin the Christmas number one spot was X Factor. Yeah. Years yeah. and years of terrible, terrible lowbrow covers of songs um, that, that, again, money's just going in Simon Cowell's pocket and <laughs> no one likes that. Well, a quick recap of the actual uh, number one singles of all time. In this country, anyways, do they know it's Christmas, as we mentioned? Uh, two is Bohemian Rhapsody. Three is Mull of Kintyre by Wings. Okay, that was totally left field <laughs> for me. And then the Boney M song, Mary's Boy Child. The number one U.S. single of all time? Bing Crosby's White Christmas. So that one's interesting to go to the, the point that Paige made about the, the big um, companies pushing a, a one song, perhaps. Uh, this week's number one single here in the UK may be Ariana Grande's Thank You Next, but let's be clear, is not to be taken as a lesson in giving thanks at Christmas time. The art of expressing gratitude is perhaps clouded by the race to stock up on stocking stuffers and ensure that turkey doesn't dry out. So to remind us of how it should be done, let's cast our minds back to 1946 when the writer Sylvia Townsend Warner penned this note to her friend and fellow writer Alice Gregory. Dearest Alice, usually one begins a thank you letter by some graceless comparison, by saying, I have never been given such a very scarlet muffler, or this is the largest horse I've ever been sent for Christmas. But your matchbox is a non-pareil, for never in my life have I been given a matchbox. Stamps, yes. Drawing pins, yes. Balls of string, yes, yes. Menacingly too often. But never a matchbox. Well, now that it has happened, I ask myself why it's never happened before. They are such charming things, neat as wrens, and what a deal of ingenuity and human artfulness has gone into their construction. For if they were like the ordinary box with a lid, they would not be one half so convenient. This one, though, is especially neat, charming and ingenious, and the tray slides in and out as though Chippendale had made it. But what I like best of all about my matchbox is that it's an empty one. I've often thought how much I should enjoy being given an empty house in Norway. What pleasure it would be to walk into those bare, wood-smelling chambers. Walls, floor, ceiling, all wood, which is, after all, the natural shelter of man, or at any rate, the most congenial. And when I opened your matchbox, which is now my matchbox, and saw that beautiful, clean, sweet-smelling, empty, rectangular expanse, it was exactly as though my house in Norway had come true, with the added advantage of being just the right size to carry in my hand. I shut my imagination up in it instantly, and it's still sitting there, listening to the wind in the firwood outside. Sitting there in a couple of days' time, I shall hear the Lutheran bell calling me to go and sing Lutheran hymns, while the pastor's wife gazes abstractly at her husband in a bower of evergreen, while she wonders if she remembered to put pepper in the goose stuffing. But I shan't go. I shall be far too happy sitting in my house that Alice gave me for Christmas. Oh, I must tell you, I finished my book, begun in 1941 and a hundred times imperiled, but finished at last. 
so I can give an undivided mind to enjoying my matchbox. Signed, Sylvia. P.S. There's still so much to say. Carried away by my delight in form and texture, I forgot to praise the picture on the back. I have never seen such an agreeable likeness of a hedgehog, and the volcano in the background is magnificent. Sylvia Townsend Warner's note to Alice Gregory there, as read by Georgina Godwin. Georgina, why does this note stand out to you? I just think it's fantastic. I mean, this is clearly a nothing present that she's made such a huge Mm. thing out of. And the real news of the letter, she's finished her book, is kind of an aside. And the fact that the only thing that there is really to talk about the matchbox is the picture, which becomes the PS. I think it's beautifully written and just such an expression. Again, we were talking about context and being of your time earlier. And I think Mm. that very much is of, of that time. Also, I think always, always write pen and ink thank you letters. Mm, do you write them? I do, actually. Black ink uh, and uh, cream paper and uh, <laughs> uh, within two days of whatever it is. You know, when I was reading about this, it's interesting that, that people, psychologists have actually studied the, the art uh, of sending cards and the effect on the sender. And a lot of time people don't send them because they think it's going to come off as cheesy or it won't have the impact. Ben, what do you think about that? I would be more than happy for anyone to send me a thank you note. Mm. I think pens and paper are just wonderful. And you know what? Another way of saying thank you without actually feeling as though you've gone overboard is to just, if you happen to be uh, of my age or hovering around 30, then it's probably unlikely that any of your uh, contemporary friends are receiving actual Christmas cards. So why don't you send an actual Christmas card? I was hearing a story just recently about someone who had so many Christmas cards in her, uh, her, her living room that every time she opened her door, the big gust of wind would blow them all over the room and she'd <laughs> have to pick them all up again. And I looked around my lounge room and thought, I don't have any physical Christmas cards. People from my people of my age aren't, yeah. aren't doing that anymore, and I just thought, wow, what a treat it would be to get something physical in the mail. Well, uh, yeah, a few nice cards around here uh, from our contributors, which is a nice touch for us at Christmas time. I look home, I look forward to going home and seeing all the all the cards my mom has gotten on the on the mantelpiece. Uh, Paige, what about you? Do you send cards? I actually, I, I haven't done in the past, but I actually am sending thank you cards this year. A lot of them because um, I've forgotten to say thank you throughout the year for a few things. So Christmas <laughs> is is my time to sort of remember all of that um and yeah there's nothing there's really nothing like the written word and we don't have much uh, much physical things left so i'll be sending thank you letters for mm. sure this christmas well said uh, well that does bring us to the end of today's show ben ryland Paige reynolds and georgina godwin thank you so much for joining us for this christmas edition of midori house today's show produced by ben researched by fernando augusto prosciacco and nick moniz our studio manager behind the glass mr david stevens midori house back in the new year from all of us here at monocle 24 we wish you a merry christmas and a happy and prosperous 2019. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. And man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Trumpets sound and angels sing. Listen what they say. That man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day.